Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives, so don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hi there. In this episode, I chat with Bob Desmond of Claremont Global about his investing journey spanning across his home country, Zimbabwe to London, and now Sydney. Bob provides an in-depth overview of the investment process at Claremont Global and demonstrates this through a lot of global names. I gained a wealth of knowledge about the importance of quality businesses and management teams when undertaking a high-conviction investment approach. It was also an important reminder of honing one's attitudes, skills, and shortcomings to become a better person and human being. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Australian Investors Podcast, Bob. How are you going? Morning, Ray. I'm good. How are you going? Yeah, good. Um, so you were born in Zimbabwe, and I noticed there are 16 official languages. Um, so what did you speak? I, I speak English. It's the official language. Um, and then uh, there's probably two other main languages, but then lots of sub-clans, uh, Shona and Indibele. Um, Shona is the kind of majority, and Indibele is kind of descended from originally from Zulus in South Africa. But I speak uh, English. Yep. Okay. And a little bit of French. 
Okay, very interesting. Any reason why you you were interested in French? Um, I lived for a, for a year there in France oh, when okay. I was younger. I wouldn't say it's that good now. Um, yeah. As judged, when I go to Paris, I give directions to taxi drivers <laughs> and end up in the wrong parts of Paris. But yeah. <laughs> great, that's fascinating. Um, so, what was it like growing up um, over in Zimbabwe? And were you into investing from a young age? Um, I wasn't actually. Um, I was kind of always interested in shares because, um, yeah, my um, my stepfather was kind of very interested in shares, and so was so was my dad. So I kind of that sort of initially piqued my interest, I guess. Uh, and I, I've always been interested in in newspapers. I mean, I, I remember being at boarding school, and I just couldn't wait for the newspaper to arrive. Which is a pretty poor newspaper in Zimbabwe, to be honest. Mainly government propaganda, but I always was interested in just newspapers and history. And I guess growing up in in Zimbabwe in Africa, politics was always very topical. Mm. Um, but yeah, I didn't start investing, um, you know, really seriously until my mid twenties. Okay, yeah. On the newspaper um, topic, was it a monopoly in terms of was it one just yeah, there was um, two two main newspapers, yeah. the, the the Herald and the Chronicle, um, both full of government propaganda. Um, it was quite interesting when I was at boarding school. The newspaper would have the sporting. Uh, the, the first thing I looked for was the sporting results from the Premier League, because I was a big supporter of of Liverpool. Um, ah, okay. You, uh, Bruce Grobler was Zimbabwean. He used to play for Liverpool, but those oh, would right. be like two or three days out of date when I got. <laughs> So yeah, it was always the sport I looked at first, and then and then the business pages, and it's pretty much still the same today. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Were there any particular businesses that really, um, you know, struck out when you were looking at the newspaper, reading over it, and thought, oh, I might put some of my hard-earned money from a young age? <laughs> no, I, I only really got interested, like I said, in shares in the in the in the mid twenties. Um, it yeah. was. Yeah, and I, um, it was quite interesting though in Zimbabwe that uh, there was very little competition. So it was a lot of the industries were controlled by foreign sort of conglomerates, and they had monopoly positions. You know, industries like beer or banking or um, a really good company called Seedco or fast food. Or um, so I always thought those were any anything consumer related. I was and brand right from an early age, consumers brands. I was always really interested in those types of businesses. Okay. Um, and then, you know, from a from you know, never really that interested in in mining and you know, yeah. capital intensive industries. It just right from the word go, just didn't appeal to me. Right. Okay, so moving forward into your twenties, so um, are you able to go through you know what? what it was like um, trying to get your head around investing and um, trying to learn um, about the industry? Yeah, so I, well, I went to university, funnily enough, in Australia, and I did a politics and economics degree, and um, I found the politics really, really interesting, though I couldn't really see how I was going to earn a living from it. Um, and then the economics, the microeconomics, I found incredibly boring. But the one subject, I think it was the only subject on the A-plus for university was the rest were very average, I'm afraid to say, <clears throat> uh, was 
was um, international finance. And I, I always found that really, really interesting, markets and international finance. So I went back to Zimbabwe. I spent one year in advertising and decided that wasn't, wasn't really for me. Um, and so then I actually started in money markets, funny enough, not actually in the stock market. So my first year or two were actually in money markets, um, dealing for clients on you know, buying treasure bills, um, NCDs, that type of thing. And it was quite an interesting time in Zimbabwe then because the economy had been really controlled and was just starting to open up. The, you know, if you remember back in the day, you had the IMF World Bank reform programs, which were big in the 90s. And it was really interesting because we'd always had negative real interest rates and interest rates had been controlled by the central bank and the government. And so they'd let interest rates be, be real. And, you know, when I started, I think interest rates were around 40%. And inflation was, let's say, 20, 25%. So you were earning a really high real rate of return on money. And it was my first kind of um, uh, uh, instance of how changing interest rates can be really dangerous to, to an investor. Because what happened over the subs subsequent couple of years, interest rates went from, call it 40% down to 10 or 15%. And so investors saw their incomes dramatically reduce but it wasn't as if the cost of living had gone down it was just going up less quickly so that was my first instance that you know investing in cash you know it's actually not not really that safe because your income stream is so volatile so that was a really you know that was probably the first lesson I, I got and obviously there were big swings in inflation and got much much worse later but that was my first job in markets in Zimbabwe mm. It would have been a very erratic time. So how did that affect your psychological mindset, like your view on um, the future of markets? Because I'm not sure if you've read um, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Um, he often says people are often shaped by um, their experiences early on and that dictates their, their view on, on the world and the future. I haven't read that book, actually. It would yeah. be an interesting one to read. I might get that one from you later. Um I think it did. I think it's had a major impact on how I think about um, markets and investing. So it's always been uncertain. You know, and in Zimbabwe, it was always uncertain, um, you know, inflation, politics. Um, and I think quite early on, I just learned that the best way to kind of navigate through that was to buy really, really good businesses um, that had to have pricing power because, because inflation was such, such a threat. They had to have strong balance sheets because interest rates were so so volatile um, mm. and you never knew where they were going. They had to be capital light because mm. inflation has a really, really bad impact on your, the capital needs of a business. I think Buffett's described it as a tapeworm. Mm. So a lot of people think in inflation you want to own a business that has um, a lot of capital. It's, it's exactly the opposite uh, because the, as inflation rises, your capital needs go up commensurately. And if you haven't got um, pricing power, your margins actually start falling. Mm. Um, and then always making sure that that I own businesses that had you know generated a lot of cash flow. Um, so that that kind of right from an early age. And then I think the other thing that was so instrumental in those years is that um, I, I was quite lucky. I got hold of a portfolio. Probably you know I was relatively young. I was still in my mid to late twenties when I started managing money. Um, probably not qualified for the job. I think I could barely read a balance sheet to be honest. And I inherited a portfolio of, let's say, 50 shares. And within a, within a year, I'd probably got that down to 10 to 12 really high-quality businesses that I felt uncomfortable with. 
And that, and I've always kind of had that sort of sense of just wanting to own the best businesses and have run a really focused portfolio. Um, and then, you know, profit from their earnings growth rather than from trading the market. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think it, it life life was has, has always been uncertain for me in, in markets because Zimbabwe, then I left there, I actually went to the UK. I mean, once inflation was well into triple digits and we had land invasions in Zimbabwe and the whole political structure was unraveling and so was the economy. Um, it wasn't a very nice time, actually. And so I decided to go to the UK and then I landed in the UK literally on 9-11 and so that was a pretty uncertain patch you know we're coming off the dot-com bubble so that was pretty uncertain for a couple of years there and then we and then we rolled into the the GFC which was you know that was a two or three year hangover of that and we've had COVID, um, Brexit, Trump you know all sorts of things and I think I think Buffett sums this up really well um, and it applies I think to to today that and un, 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 the future is always uncertain um, and you know, uh, and I think the phrase he uses is, um, "You pay a high price for a cherry consensus, uh, but uncertainty is the friend of the buyer of long-term value." And I, I've always believed that—that mm. you you need to kind of lean into uncertainty rather than running away from it. Mm. Just going to take a step back. Um, so when you were running that portfolio of fifty companies, and then you cut that down to ten to twelve, was that um, during your time as a portfolio manager at Bard? Asset management, and it was. I was work, I was working. So I, I actually moved after about a year or two from money market into asset management, yeah. um, and then I worked in it was a subsidiary of Anglo American, yeah. And I worked there for three or four years, I think, and then I moved to um, Fleming Martin, which was a subsidiary of of Fleming's London, yeah, uh, Fleming Fleming Group in London, yeah. And how did you make that decision to have a higher conviction portfolio? Was it through readings um, or the lessons that you took away from your development or was there a mentor um, before? No, it, it just seemed it just seemed to make sense to me um, that there are only so many hours in the day and hmm. why, why spend time? Well, there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so much capital. So why, why spend your time on inferior businesses or why spend your capital on, on poor businesses? You know, it's it's much like running a business. Any business person tries to focus their capital on their best their best businesses, and it seemed to me the most obvious thing to do um, in, in Zimbabwe as well. I mean, there was also one other constraint is that a lot of the the tail of the portfolio was you know very illiquid, mm. so you couldn't really be, build meaningful positions in them. Um, and yeah, it it wasn't actually, and it was only about a year or two later that I discovered Warren Buffett. Mm. And that was for me was the real light bulb moment. Like, yeah, this this really makes makes sense for me. Focused quality, long term investing as opposed to short term trading. And there's lots of people who can do that. I'm not, I, it just wasn't for me. Yeah, yeah. So you spent a good chunk of your career um, in Africa. So you became CIO at Amara Group, and then you made a decision to uh, move to the UK. Um, so what kind of prompted that decision to move away from your, your hometown? I just things had become really difficult to, to live there, to be honest. You know, the political situation had become untenable. Um, you know, uh, Robert Mugabe had, you know, started invading, you know, um, you had land invasions, um, inflation was skyrocketing, um, you know, 
you know, I knew people who'd, who'd you know, um, who'd lost their lives and it, it just became not a very nice place to, to be. Um, and much as I, you know, even today, I, I still love the country and, and think they're amazing people there. Um, yeah, it's just, there's, and it, it was quite instructive to me to get to, to the UK and kind of go, just, just that sort of feeling of freedom to, to live in a country where, where the police weren't, where you weren't actually scared of the police. The police, you could just walk up to a policeman and not be worried they'd arrest you mm. or um, um, free press, you know, um, things like that. And just, you know, I, I just loved that in the UK when mm. I got there, that sort of sense of, of freedom and a free press and people could do mm. what they want. The weather was terrible. Um, and then I also loved loved just being in in London and the markets and everything. So that was the the main reason I decided to leave. Yeah, I'm sure Liverpool would have played a part in that <laughs> being able to yeah. turn up to the games. <laughs> I, I probably wasn't quite as 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 fanatical as I as as I was then. I mean, I I it, um I'm a little bit of a fair weather supporter. Like this season, I haven't really been following, but I see they're in the hunt. There's okay. only seven games to go, so now I'll be paying you know way more attention and getting up in the morning to watch it. It's really close. <laughs> were there any other countries uh, on your mind when you were tossing up where to go? But funny enough, um, Australia had—I I don't know why—Australia ever since I was a young kid. Um, I remember as a young kid opening my parents giving me a book and opening this book, and in the book was um, a picture of the Barrier Reef. Yeah. And ever, ever, and I've never been there, amazingly. And ever since I was a young kid, I always had this feeling that I would end up in Australia. So having studied in Australia, I, um, I, my long, I had actually put in papers to immigrate to Australia, but because I had a British passport and I did want to work in, in London, I, I kind of think any young person should either live in London or, or New York. I just think it's just such a, and probably especially London because you're in Europe. Mm. It's it's just such a um, it's so good for all your other things that you can learn about you know history and politics and and so I always wanted to work in London, but Australia was the other place I considered. I you know my brother lived in South Africa, and I thought well South Africa has its its own issues as well. Mm. Um, States didn't have the sports I wanted to follow, so that was that was out. Um, so that was probably yeah, it was England or Australia. Mm. So what was the adjustment like in terms of um, investing for clients in Zimbabwe uh, compared to the UK? I remember when I got my, um, my first job there and um, yeah, I was so, so excited. I mean, it seemed like you know, I was in the big smoke and I was in London and you know, I think I was given stocks like Walmart, J&J and LVMH and I was just um, Colgate, um, some, to name you know, a few of them. And I was just... I just thought I was, I was kind of like awed. How, how am I gonna how am I gonna cope with these? But actually, quite quickly, I realised all the principles were the same. The numbers were just a lot lot bigger. Um, there was a lot more information as well, which was good. Um, but it was it was quite interesting because when I got there, uh, we were just kind of coming off the dot com, so valuations were still really high. Um, I remember GE used to trade at 50 times earnings, if I remember. Walmart was 40. Um, and, yeah, but it was the same, just building building models, trying to understand the company's competitive advantage. Mm. Um, yeah, it, 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 very soon I realized the principles were, were exactly the same, just bigger numbers. Mm. Did you ever come across Cisco uh, at the time? Which one? The, uh, the, the tech one or the food one? We used uh, to the own the food tech, one. The tech one. The tech one. Um, Cisco, I think, was on our watch list. Um, never ever made it into the portfolios. I think we were well. First of all, it was, it was really expensive. I, mean, I yeah. think at the peak of the 
Mm. I can't remember what it got to, but many hundreds of PEs at the peak of the dot com. Um, just an absolute darling. Um, it's quite yeah. funny. I think the market cap got to 500 billion, which was considered crazy then. And now, you know, we've got two trillion market caps. Um, but it was when I never owned it. Mm. Was that a strong signal to, or were there any concerns of that the market was very overvalued? Oh, no. Was, yeah, I was <laughs> late 90s. In fact, actually, when I was still in, in Zimbabwe, I was managing money globally as well. Only, only, um, I was investing in wider Africa, which was really interesting. So you're mm. coming across stocks that were on three or four times earnings, really good businesses like you know, breweries in Kenya or Botswana that were subsidiaries of global multinationals. The one in Botswana is a subsidiary of South African breweries. Mm. And I think the one in Kenya was either subsidiary of Diageo or Heineken, I can't remember, but really good businesses mm. on three or four times earnings. Mm. But I was also managing money globally uh, for wider African clients, but only only in funds we weren't picking stocks globally but it was okay. clear clear to us that you know this this was crazy the, the multiples and um, you didn't have to be a genius to to work it out but it was difficult because for a couple of years those clients that were invested globally were kind of going well you know why aren't you buying i'm trying to remember all the darlings cisco was one of them yahoo amazon um uh was that the uh the one, uh, the one from Canada, is the telecoms company, Nortel or something like that. Mm. Yeah, so there were so many darling stocks. Um, uh, so we were still coming off the back of that when I got to London. The one I remember particularly was GE on 50 times, yeah. which was quite, quite crazy because it was on 50 times, but 60% of their earnings came from financials. So if you put the financials on, say, a bank P of 10 or 12 times, mm. it was absolutely insane what they were valuing the industrial businesses at. Mm. Mm. It's very fascinating. Um, so you decide to move to Australia uh, eventually um, uh, in 2012. And then interestingly- no, actually, I actually moved to Australia in 2008, actually. My time is oh, always okay. good. Every time I move, yeah. so when I moved to Zimbabwe, I landed on 9-11. When I moved to Australia, yeah. I pretty much landed when Lehman's <laughs> went bankrupt. So yeah. when I'm moving, I'll, I'll tell you. Give you a good signal <laughs> for the markets. Best you get out of the market. <laughs> um, so you took up a role as a senior equity analyst, um, having been a portfolio manager uh, previously at um, at your previous uh, roles. Um, so was there any reason why you took up um, that position at Evans & Partners in Australia? I guess what attracted me to the role, um, uh, Steve Arnold, uh, who's gone off to run his, his own fund now, I really, um, we shared exactly the same sort of investment approach. Mm. Um, I've always kind of looked at investing as, as a bit like religion in a way. You've got to find, you've got to find your what makes sense for you. And so, if you if you're going to if you're a really quality growth investor and you're going to try and work with a value investor or macro investor or mm. thematic investor, it's just going to be really really difficult. Mm. Um, and so, you know, shared exactly the same investment approach. I really liked um, the way Evans Partners, still to this day, is is so um, client centric. Mm. Um, you know, they have some really high quality clients and high quality advisors there. So I really like that side of it. I do like the client interaction. Mm. Um, and they were, you know, I, I felt that that was an investment philosophy that, that would work for me. So that's, that's why I joined in 2012. Mm. And then eventually you've developed and morphed that into, um, Claremont Global. So, um, which is your current, um, um, point at this, mo- this point. Yeah, in time. it's just, it's the same strategy. 
Um, yeah. We just we rebranded it um, Claremont Global for the for the external market. Um, uh, we still manage money for M's and partners, um, especially on managed accounts. Yeah. Okay. And there's um, some meaning behind the name. Is that right? There, there is. Uh, so originally we were going to its genesis. Um, Evans and Partners was the genesis. Uh, its suburb was Jollymont, next to the MCG. If you know Melbourne. Mm. When I googled Jollymont Global, it was a it was a mining company, which I thought was probably inappropriate given um, we're never going to own a mining stock. So that had to go. And then I looked at Montclair, which was one of my favourite places in Zimbabwe and the Eastern Highlands, where I used to go and play golf and. Um, but that was um, that was not free, um, and it, uh, it had actually become a casino. So I thought that was probably pretty inappropriate. Mm. So then we flipped the name around and called it Claremont, um, which is actually interestingly a, a suburb in in Cape Town. It's a suburb where one of the team members was from. It's a suburb in Perth where I went to university. Mm. Um, there's a Claremont in the UK where our head of distribution comes from. Um, and then we also have, uh, we managed to find, we have a Mexican in the team and we managed to find um, a Claremont in New Mexico. So that's, and most importantly, the domain name was free. <laughs> that's great. Um, that's really, really good to find. And people it. told me it sounded vaguely prestigious. So I thought, oh, that's probably, probably a good way to go. <laughs> it does sound very nice. And it's, it's <laughs> you great. It's so? <laughs> a common connection between everyone in the team, which is, uh, which is good. Um, so outside of investing, do you have any um, any interests that you um, undertake to get your mind off investing? Um, I used to play lots of golf, but unfortunately, I have uh, not a bit of arthritis in the shoulders these days. So that that doesn't happen so much these days. I just I think just going going to gym, keeping fit. I like reading a lot, like walking. Um, those are probably. I mean, life's pretty busy with two kids, work. So. Yeah, that, that's kind of my, my main pastimes. Oh, nice. Um, so most of the books that you read, are they for investing purposes or is it just general? You read anything? I've, <clears throat> I've always, I, I will, I, I know I need to read more fiction and I never read enough fiction. So that tends to just, fiction is generally holiday reading. Um, like, um, you know, when I get, get a nice thick book, I mean, really good book I read, um, over the Christmas holidays, or two of them was Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, which is really good. It's historical fiction, so that that I really likes all about Henry VIII. Um, I like books where I kind of just learn something from it. Mm. Uh, so love biographies, um, love sporting biographies. Um, yes, read books on investing. I've just finished reading um, book on capital, story of of long term investment excellence, which which I think I read. Um, probably nearly 20 years ago, but I've gone back and reread it, which I think is is such a good book on, on investment management. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so those are probably my main just biographies, sporting biographies, um, mm. and then holiday reading is trying, trying to dip into fictional histor- historical fiction. I also love reading history books, especially when I was younger. Okay. But, uh, living in the UK, um, yeah. there's just so much history all around you. And I think coming from from the colonies, I was very aware of of those gaps of knowledge that i had just mm. growing up in africa and just living in europe and the uk yeah just and i've always been interested in history you know that that's something else i like reading as well mm. i remember going to so many museums and um, when i was traveling around europe just non-stop so it's just limitless <laughs> yeah i think it's more it just makes it more interesting when you're actually there yeah for some reason um and it's all around you it just kind of does stimulate the mind somewhat 
So, yeah, it's great to get an understanding of your personal life um, and your personal journey as well. And moving on to the investment philosophy of Claremont Global, it's founded upon the five P's as referred in your investor manual. And the first um, is, is people. So the investor manual says the team spends years researching into a business. So a patient temperament is required. Are you able to to provide some examples of this in action um, from ID generation to actually make it into the portfolio? Sure. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, you know, we have something in the portfolio called Ross Stores, uh, which is an off-price retailer based in the States. I think I first came across that, that in the early 2000s. I'd kind of followed it over the years. I never managed to convince um, the portfolio managers in London at the company I was at there, Silo and Investment Management, which is, you know, really high quality growth manager. Um, mm. I could never convince them to buy it. So I think we went to see a store in the States and they were like, Jesus, this is, this is a dog's breakfast. Um, and that, that is Ross Stores. It's a bit of a treasure hunt experience. So I never managed to get that in the portfolio. Um, and I literally, the first time I got it into the portfolio was 2017. So that was probably a 15-year waiting period. LVMH, I first started covering LVMH when I moved to London in 2001. Mm. It was a very different business then. It had quite a lot of debt. I think they'd done quite a lot of acquisitions. Um, but it sort of was on and off. And then I think I started following it closely, more closely, 2012. Um, and never, we never bought it. Uh, I think there were some concerns around the big acquisition of Bulgari, which, which, which I got wrong. Um, which turned out to be a fantastic acquisition. And so I basically followed that for years and years and years and only got it into the portfolio in 2018, December 2018, mm. um, when the Fed was tapering and the stock came off. And then unfortunately, it went up 50% in two months. Um, and so I had to sell it because it had gone well, well beyond our fair value. Mm. And that was, <laughs> that was traumatic. I didn't... Anyway, um, four, four years later, we just bought it again. Um, mm. And the the opportunity we've been following it for another four years, and the opportunity came with the an unfortunate situation in Ukraine um, with the war. You know, the share price went down fifteen percent in a week, and we have our kind of entry price went beneath it, um, and that's given us an opportunity to own it again. So you know, I've, I've followed LVMH for twenty years. I followed Ross Stores mm. for twenty years. Visa I've followed since they listed since two thousand and seven. Um, yeah. So for that Bulgari acquisition, was it considered to be a big acquisition um, back then? It was a, to be honest, I can't remember exactly. It, it was, I think, what what was more more the concern. It was big, but and you know they didn't put their balance sheet at risk. It was big, but the mm. the acquisition price looked really expensive. Okay. Um, but what I got completely wrong is that uh, when LVMH got hold of it, let. I'm trying to remember, but let's say it was a mid-single-digit margin business. You know, it's probably mm. a mid-20s margin business now. Mm. Um, and that LVMH would take it to a whole whole new level. And so actually mm. what looked expensive once they got margins up to normalized levels was actually a very good acquisition. And I think Tiffany's will be a similar story. You know, I think Tiffany's has always had a great brand, but they, they've never really taken the long-term view that management like LVMH it's it's more that American type of company which is trying to make the quarter or make the year, whilst you know LVMH think in decades and they really invest behind their brand. So I think Tiffany will probably be a similar acquisition for LVMH. What 
you think of the ingredients behind how LVMH really um, build that high luxury <laughs> brand that people seem to just keep paying more and more money? I, I think, you know, right, right, right from the beginning there, we, we, you know, it's quite a controversial figure, but Bernard Arnault, um, he's been there, you know, 40 years. Hmm. So I think right from the top he and being French, he's always had this, it's more than just a business for him. It is, a, he sees himself as a guardian of those brands, that they are a symbol of French heritage and history. Mm. So I think he takes a really long, long-term view. Mm. Because he takes a long-term view, um, he, he really in, invests behind the brands. I think the other thing that I really like about LVMH is that every brand has its own identity. So they go to market with their own distribution um, and they have their own identity. So they will use the scale of, of the group in terms of, you know, finding the best rental locations, in terms of marketing, advertising. They're brilliant at social media. In fact, they've, you know, that's been really, really good for their business. But by the same token, they don't kind of confuse the brand heritages by, you know, having a, you know, a unified distribution force that goes to market or, you know, having lots of different brands in the same store. So I think you know, long-term thinking, I mean, obviously they have great brands. So that's a, that's a really good place to start. Um, you know, brands that are hundreds of years old, um, you know, real aspirational heritage. You can't recreate what they've got. Um, but I think really what it all stems from, there's lots of good brands out there, but I think it is management. Um, every brand has its own heritage, long-term thinking. Um, I think that's what's, and scale, scale. Very interesting. Um, just to flip the tables, now from an analyst perspective in your team, um, using the time that you take um, to enter a position, um, do analysts get frustrated when they try and introduce an idea and uh, put it on your table and it just doesn't um, make it because they spent so much time researching into it? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, at that level, I, I'm an analyst as well. So if, if I want to get a stock onto what we call our approved list, I, I have to submit it to the other analyst. Hmm. So there's four of us. And if two turn it down, um, then I need to go back and do more work um, or the idea is going to get scrubbed. So that, that can be frustrating because you've spent, you know, best part of call it three months on it. And that's all you've done for three months. And then you get to present it to the team and they go, nah, don't like it. Mm. Um, but having having said that, it is incredibly interesting work. Um, you know, you, ha you have to genuinely be interested in, in businesses and what makes them tick and what's their competitive advantage and what are the people like and what are their competitors. Um, so I find all of that really interesting anyway. Mm. Um, and it's, it's useful work that may be used out. But I think you have to genuinely enjoy businesses as opposed to trading markets. So, um, and then, you know, I do want the analysts, if, if we're the, the two portfolio managers who put the, the, the portfolio together, you know, you do want the analysts to be frustrated or pushing hard to get their ideas in, which kind of shows that they have conviction. Mm. Um, so, and they're the ones who know that, you know, probably know that the business is better than we do. Mm. Um, so you want them pushing really, really hard. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're an analyst who, just wants to flip stocks um, and you're not getting stocks in and yeah, you're going to find it frustrating working for us. I guess the benefit of having such a high threshold is you have a bench of pretty high quality stocks, even though 
even though they don't make it into your top 10 or top 15. And it's a matter of um, following the story and monitoring the performance of the business. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you got it pretty much. Um, you know, approved list is just, I think it's just under 40 names. I think it's 37 or 38. Hmm. The portfolio is 14. Um, so, you know, we just just keep an eye on that on that approved list. And then all our work is is trying to trying to drive more ideas onto the approved list. And I mm. always think the portfolio is as good as the approved list. Mm. Um, you know, your team is as good as your bench. Uh, and so you always want to have a really high quality bench so that, that if there is a business in the portfolio you're not quite sure of, that you can you can switch. Um, and we did that recently, actually. We had the Azure in the portfolio, you know, good business, mm. uh, very good business, but I wouldn't say a great business. Mm. Um, and one of the questions we always ask ourselves, what, what is probably the, the weakest link in the portfolio? And we felt that Diageo probably was. Mm. Um, and then with the Ukraine situation, we got an opportunity to switch from LVMH to, to uh, sorry, from Diageo to LVMH at exactly the same multiple, probably nearly a 20% pickup in value. Um, LVMH is, let's say, their organic growth is probably twice what Diageo's is. I think their pricing power is better. Um, and so, but you, what you have to have done is you have to have done the work before the share price starts going down, because once the share price starts going down, um, what, if you haven't done the work, you tend to actually move away because you just mm. don't know. So that, that, that's crucial. You have to do the work bef- before the share price starts moving. Mm. It's that psychological mindset where you, you, if you know that a company is a very high quality business, then you want to get at a cheaper price. But then I think generally most people tend to steer away from something that where the share price is going down. <laughs> well, it's really interesting. So if, if and this is you're absolutely right. It's the if you, the psychology of it. So if I look at the approved list, and when the share price starts going down, my natural inclination is to to want to buy it because I've spent years following it, mm. done the work, we've got an entry price, and so when it goes below that, then I'm. I'm however. And this is the endowment effect. Anything, anything that I'm not looking at and there's a potential idea for the portfolio and the share price is going down, mm. my immediate psychological reaction is, oh, I probably want to stay away from that, mm. um, but, which is not right. I mean, mm. it's, it's just psychological bias. It's just how we are wired as, as humans. Mm. And all, you know, if on the approved list, we see it as opportunity, but on the watch list, we see it as risk. Mm. But it, there's no difference, really. Mm. I think the quality of your bench is probably quite similar to the Liverpool bench at the moment. You've got um, a plethora of strikers. Um. Yeah, I mean, I haven't followed Liverpool that closely today. I mean, I'm actually a bit of a rugby tragic, actually. So ah, okay. if you actually look, I support the Springboks. And if you look at their yeah. bench, it's probably the bench, best bench in, in, in world, world rugby. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does help to have a, a good bench. I'm sure Australia would appreciate having some of those players from that bench. <laughs> um, so moving on to um, the next um, aspect of the people uh, factor. So you want analysts to put their ego um, at the door and then put um, the portfolio and the process uh, the front and centre um, as priorities. Has this ever been an issue um, at any of the funds that you've managed? Um, to be honest, no. Um, I think I've always been fortunate to work um, with people who, yeah, who who were rational, 
um, had a process, um, you know, when I worked in, in London with Silent, um, yeah, they, we just followed the process. Probably there's more, more macro, which I've probably, when I was younger, was, was more interested in, and I've kind of subsequently experienced has taught me I've got no edge at all in macro markets. Um, but yeah, you just following the process, buying good businesses, having a target entry price, target exit price. Hmm. Um, then at Evans and Partners, same same process. Um, even in Zimbabwe, we had a very similar process. There was a intrinsic value for every every business we owned, and we would be looking to buy that at a discount always. So I have been lucky. I've never worked in a. In a uh, but what I have seen though, what I have seen is people come into teams. Um, particularly in London, there was an instance where. Um, uh, let's say a big personality came into the team, hmm. and it was very detrimental to the, the team stability, morale, process, um, and eventually um, that that team separated and broke up as a result of it. And that was really in- instrumental to me in how important getting the right people around the the table is, because if if one person dominates and sucks all the oxygen out of the room. The, the quieter, perhaps lesser personalities mm. won't speak up. Mm. Um, and they may actually have that the exact kernel of information or truth that you're looking for. Mm. So when you say bigger personalities, do you think um, their confidence and overconfidence, did that lead to poor outcomes for that particular person? Or um, To be honest, I've... No, uh, I mean that was just a situation where the and I think there's every every investment team has their own culture. I'm not saying our culture is the best; it just works for our for us. You know, there could be another team where it's it could be you know with the alpha male, alpha female, hard charging, mm. um, you know, everyone sharp elbowed, and you know, and that's that's mm. just how they roll, and that mm. probably works for them. Just for our team. That's just not how our personalities are. So I, I think mm. a big part of it is putting together um, a team where where everyone compensates for everyone else. You might have bulls, you might have bears, mm. you might have good big picture people, you might have people who are good at detail. Um, you know, just making sure that everyone compensates because if everyone is all the same person, then there's no balance in the team. And I, and I guess where where I learned that probably was most instructive was. Um, if you've ever read the history of long-term capital management, I don't know if you've ever read that book. No, no. Um, and uh, it was, a, you know, have you have you heard of it, the, the firm? No, or, I haven't. Actually. I think it's the book's called the smartest the smartest guys in the room. Ah, oh, smartest and, guys in the room. That was on Enron. Um, oh, was that Enron? Sorry, you're, you're right. That was Enron. Yeah. I can't remember, but this was the story of long-term capital management. I think they had five or seven yeah. PhDs, and they're all extremely clever, and they've won, you know. Um, Nobel prizes for economics, and they were all extremely clever. But the the firm went went bankrupt because they all thought exactly the same, mm. and so there wasn't a, there wasn't and there was arrogance. So there mm. was arrogance, there was hubris, and then there was no balance in the in the team, mm. um, and they got it wrong. Mm. And they were too arrogant to admit that they had got it wrong, and things. And that was really instructive to me. I saw the same thing happen in the late nineties as well. Um, where people deferred to to you know some of the dot com experts, mm. um, and everyone just kind of deferred to the expert, um, and and that kind of was just instructive to me that you need you need balance in a team for you always need that one person going well what about this what mm. about that you know and it can be frustrating 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're trying to get a, something into the portfolio and there's that person going, well, what about this? Or what about mm-hmm. that? But, you know, in hindsight, you go, gee, thank God that was that was brought up. I mean, you know, a couple of years back, um, I was attracted to looking at Alibaba. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this is an amazing business model, amazing opportunity. We knew from talking to the luxury brands, you know, how, how important um, their, their distribution was. And in my mind, I was thinking this is incredible because for most retailers, you need to you need to lock up the real estate. And you know, Alibaba's locked up the, the virtual real estate, if you like, mm. in China. But one of my colleagues actually said to me, um, "Yeah, but you know, we, we've never been to China, um, and you know, what are the shareholder protections there? Um, and you know, what is the story with the variable interest rate entity structures? What do we actually own?" Um, and the more we dug into that, you know, we thought, "Yeah." I, and one of the rules I've always thought is a good one is that you, you shouldn't put money into a business unless you're willing to put your whole portfolio into that business as mm. if as if it was your own, mm. you know, there's only business you had. And I remember um, reading uh, something by uh, Jeff, Immel, um, Jeff Immelt from, from GE and he's saying every time you'd be going to China for 30 years and he said every time I get on the plane to go home, I realise I know less about China than when I, when I landed. So I think mm. it's... You, you must, and I and I saw this again. I saw this in Africa, where people would come and invest in Africa from mm. outside, and they they just didn't know the the nuances of the the good managements or the bad managements. They didn't know the political nuances. They didn't know, you know, and and that was and so probably that you know, and that was great. Just the one person in the team who said, "I'm not sure," and it, it's actually so far turned out to be a really good mm. decision. Mm. So you, you do need that that kind of balance in a team. I really like that uh, balanced approach with uh, the formation of your team. I think it's uh, really important to have. Um, so I understand you also speak with ex-employees, suppliers, competitors, industry experts, and management to really understand what makes a company special. Um, does your team have a particular process or checklist that you use to obtain this information? <coughs> well, we have a template when we put together a new idea, um, a new idea called the ILS document hmm. and that's probably 50 or 70 pages uh, so there's a checklist on that and you know you go through that um, but I think just generally when, when you're in talking to experts the, the, it generally will follow um, its own line of questioning if you like hmm. but but what we're really looking to to try and understand is you know how, how do they think about customers how do they think how do they treat their employees um, you know, what's their competitive advantage? Are they long-term? Are they short-term? Are they financially driven? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that we've owned and I've spoken about a few times is, is Sherwin-Williams. And that's a company that's based in the Midwest. And it's probably my poster child for, for just a really simple business with amazing long-term management, incredible culture. Um, and, and when I first visited them, 2018, I think, um, I'd, I'd Follow them. It was actually owned in the portfolio some years back, but I remember sitting down and I asked, um, it was actually the head of investor relations, something like, um, "What's your, what's your company's mission, or something like that?" Mm. And, and I just wanted to see the answer. They said, mm. and he said, "Our our job is to make our customers, who are professional painters, wealthier and run their business." And I thought that was a really interesting answer. Mm. A lot of companies will say something. Which means nothing. Our job is to create shareholder value, which which mm-hmm. I find just what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way they spoke about their customers and the way you know you look at their employees, they have turnover of less than ten percent, seven or eight percent, which is incredible in a retailer. 
Um, and then, you know, the average management tenure is 24 years. The CEO has been there 36 years. Um, and you can just see there's something, something more than just creating shareholder value. People don't work at that company. I'm sure they get paid, you know, well and it's competitive, but it's, it was more than that. And that's really, really hard to compete against. Another one in Cleveland is, is Nordson, <coughs> a really high-quality industrial. Uh, and they give 5% of the USP tax profits. We haven't known it for a while, but 5% of the USP tax profits to charity. Mm. So that that's like... It's it just shows you that they, they obviously if that's how they treat their communities, they, they're going to be fair with their customers and fair with their employees and fair with their shareholders. And I think over time, if you've got a good business anyway, and then you attach to that good ethics and good management um, and good capital allocation, um, that's that can be incredibly powerful. Mm. The Sherwin William one is yeah, very uh, interesting one. Well, it's that's just the, the paints one, business. Yeah, it's literally the just the paints business. Commercial paint, right? Uh, well, they have, they have, they also, yeah, the bulk of the business is uh, selling through their own stores. And that's the other thing I like about that business. You can only buy Sherwin-Williams paint in a Sherwin-Williams store and it is sold to you by a professional, someone you know, especially oh, okay. on a professional relationship. I mean, 10% of the customers are DIY people who, who want to go to a, a trade place to buy decent paint. Um, but yeah, it's just paint. I mean, the normal yeah. growth of that industry is going to be GDP, but Sherwin-Williams has grown multiples of that. By taking market share and just looking after their customers, building trusted relationships, thinking about the long term. Um, yeah. So they really treated their customers, the professional painters, really well by did they lift prices back um during that time or was it <laughs> it's an interesting business because um they're they are maybe just say slightly slow to take up prices, but even through this current phase of prices going up, they have taken up prices quite aggressively. The whole the whole industry has, mm. because there's been a lot of cost cost pressures coming through because of logistics, commodity inputs. Um, so that's really come through, and they have taken up prices quite aggressively. But what's interesting is once they do that, and then those cost pressures abate, mm. they don't give price back. Because the price of paint in the in the job is ten to fifteen percent of the total cost of any job, mm. so the, and the main input for any paint job is actually labour. Mm. So if you if you can get the you know save that that the paint contractor time mm. and make sure you get the right paint, have it available at the right time, mm. um, you can actually save them a lot of money. Um, if you've been if you think of the the low turnover of the managers, so call it. Mm call it six or seven percent so the average manager has been there 15 years in a store he's going to know those painters really really well mm. because they come in every day for yeah. a coffee so now you have this trusted relationship they remember the goodwill of all the jobs where you saved them they said listen i desperately need this paint i've got to get this job finished i'm paying my laborers they're just sitting around on the site doing nothing um, and then you've got this database of all the jobs that you've done for that painter and we, when we did our background work, um, there were, you know, Valspar, they did a merger with Valspar some years ago, and we did an interview with the Valspar, the Valspar employees, and they were all going, we were even offering to deliver paint to these people at cost. We would actually deliver it on site at cost. And they would just say, no, thanks. We've been with Sherwin-Williams for 20 years. We, we, don't, we don't change. Mm. Mm. And that was just really powerful, I thought. Mm. It seems like their customer value proposition was really strong from um, the early days and they were able to really um, lock in um, those commercial painters. Would you say that 
the customer value proposition, trying to understand that, is that at the top of the funnel or, or is there something else at the top of your funnel, like quick ways for you to really cut out a lot of um, companies that might not meet your high quality criteria? I think quick ways always start with the numbers, to be honest. Yeah. So I'll just look at return on capital margins. I think gross margin is particularly a key number to look at because it shows the, the pricing power of the business that you have and, and the competitive advantage. So if I look at our portfolio today, I think the average gross margin is 56%. Now, the average listed business is 35 So it's clear we have competitive advantage in pricing power. So you know, gross margin, returns on invested capital, cash conversion is a key number I look at. And then I'll look at, you know, through time, what's been um, organic sales growth, you know, stripping out acquisitions and currency. Mm. And one of the other things just really quickly to look at is go, okay, if in, in recession, look at the GFC, look at COVID and just have a look at the, the turnover. Mm. Um, then I'd look more at the turnover than the EBIT and just what happened, what happened, how, how cyclical is that business? And then I'll quickly go and look at the cash flow and go, oh, what happened to the cash flow through mm. that? How resilient were they? Did they have to cut the dividend? Did they have to, you know, issue emergency capital. So those are quick things to look at. That, that doesn't take long. Okay. And then, then I try and work out, well, why are those numbers that good? Is, is this something I can understand? It's kind of like that moment of truth. So I try and think of if I'm the consumer and I'm buying this product or service, hmm. at that moment of truth, is, is this just a, a habitual instinctive purchase that I do? Or is this something that I'm very conscious of and there's lots of opportunities I can switch and what are the competitors? And then also really just trying to understand, um, trying to understand if I, if I were given, I think, I think Buffett said this, if you were given a huge unlimited wallet and I started a business from scratch and I wanted to take market share of this business, how easy would it be to do that? Um, and then the other thing I look for is, is simplicity. I've got to be able to understand the business. And I think that's, that's so powerful if you think, you know, and would I be comfortable buying the whole business? Mm. And that's why we stay away from complexity, you know, things that are huge parts of the market. That are, you know, there's people who can do this. I, I, I just can't, you know, banks, resources, oils, pharmaceuticals, biotech, um, insurers. You know, you need to be a real expert in understanding those businesses. Mm. you know um and that's just not for us mm. when you say um being able to understand businesses um from your point of view what what constitutes an understandable business like is it being able to understand how the business makes money or is it uh, more so trying to find data points where you can monitor the performance of a business uh well, I, I guess it's there's there's some form of experience and in, intuition in it. Mm. Um, you know, if I look at take our, I mean, and the way I think about it is, is our portfolio is effectively broken up into into five divisions, if you like. Um, so, in in our financial plumbing businesses, you know, we might have something like Visa mm. um, or, or CME, the world's biggest interest rate futures exchange, and also has lots of other equity and commodity indices. When I think of those businesses, you know, it's it's, it's clear that there's a network effect. Um, there's a network effect, there's an element of brand, there's an element of trust, there's an element of scale. Um, uh, it's very low cost to value. Um, merchants might argue differently on Visa, but for, the, for, the, for a consumer, it's an it's incredibly convenient way of, of paying for things. Um, so it's kind of looking, and I, I think Michael Porter is very instrumental and probably 
you know, one of the best books I've ever read is Joan, Joan, um, Joan Margareta's, I think its surname is Understanding Michael Porter. And just, just if you understanding competitive advantage and, and it, yeah. it's, it is a form of experience and intuition, I guess it's, and it's not, it's not rocket science, this stuff. Um, it's more just around having the discipline to say no. I mean, so much of investing is not what you pick. It's what you don't pick. Um, I, I think it's even more important um, than, than much you actually pick in football terms that you spoke about. You know, you have teams <laughs> who win by scoring the most goals, but you'll, you know, generally the teams that win the World Cups are the ones who, who win by making the least mistakes. And that's kind of our investment approach. You know, if we look in business services, we own um, Aon. But something like Aon is really quite a simple business to understand. It's, it's, it's risk, um, risk broking, it's um, consultancy. You know, quite a simple business, um, you know, been around, you know, very long period of time. There's always going to be a need to ensure assets and risks. Um, there's always going to be a need for businesses to consult around retirements or talent, um, pensions. Um, you know, these are very slow changing businesses. It's, you know, it's quite simple to understand. You know, if I think of our, our branded business, Nike, it's obvious that it's, it's an incredible brand. It's got incredible scale. It's got huge digital insights. It's got an amazing route to market and increasingly controls its distribution. Um, LVMH, we've spoken about, um, you know, if I look at our healthcare businesses, they, they're just essentially, they're healthcare services. So we own a business like Steris, which is hospital sterilization. Um, they also do sterilization for medical devices and for pharmaceutical companies. But it, in essence, it's quite a simple business. A hospital has to sterilize um, mm. their, their equipment. Medical devices companies have to sterilize. It, I, I, I can, it's quite simple to understand. It's low cost to value. It's repeat purchase. Um, there's scale involved. So we're kind of always looking for those same sort of things. Mm. When we're looking at investment, we have to say, we think the oil price will be this, or if we're looking at a bank stock, we think interest rates will be that, or we think the economy will be this. Um, experience has just taught me, I, I'm just not very good at that. Mm. Um, and I don't like you know, trading businesses based on macro views, trading markets. I mm. much feel much more comfortable owning something where I only have to make one decision and ideally never have, you know, that's one, one, one way decision ideally. Mm. It's very interesting to um get your view on that because when i think a lot of people can get carried away with a technical story and i think people or new analysts probably spend a lot of time trying to learn a very technical industry that might seem very interesting um but it seems like based on your process you probably save time by not um by avoiding a lot of those companies that can get quite technical um, I've made my mistakes over time, Ray. So I can tell you, I'm, I have, I have owned, um, I have owned uh, resource stocks. That when I, can, I, I remember in the early days, I read a book by Martin Pring, Technical Analysis Explained. You know, I've made, you know, I've made macro predictions and got them wrong. I mean, I was genuinely convinced after the GFC we were looking at a Great Depression. It didn't come to pass. Um, I was too bearish through COVID. Um, mm. You know, I thought this was probably GFC Mark II or mm. worse. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've thought for years that the Australian property market's expensive. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think there's so, you know, I, and, and quite often with people, I think this is, you know, something people need to think about is, is compound probabilities. And, and, the, and the best example I can give of that is, you know, I have clients ask me, well, what, what do you think, 
will happen in, in the Ukraine war, how long will it go on for? Well, let's say I have a 50% chance of getting that right. Mm. And then what's the impact on markets? Well, let's say I've got a 50% chance of getting that right. So 50% to 50%. Well, I've only got a 20%, 25% chance of getting the final answer right. You know, if you think of Trump, you know, no one, very few people predicted he would win. I mean, it was probably, let's just say, a 25% probability. But even that 25% people who got the call right on Trump winning, how many then went on to get the call right that the market would rally and would be up 14% per annum through his presidency? Mm. So, so many of these things at a macro level are so hard to predict. You know, one of the things I like to say to people, I think since Google started, there have been 138 meetings of the Fed. And I don't know how much time and energy has been spent analyzing those minutes. Mm. What does that nuance of that word mean or that word or taper or easing or whatever mm. adjective they throw in there? But around the same time, you could have bought Google. I was mm. pretty obvious at the beginning that Google was going, I mean, we were very slow. I only really picked up on Google, I think, in 2009. Mm. But um, even so, you take, you know, take um, Google's Sherwin-Williams, Ross Stores, all of these businesses, you, had, you didn't take a lot of decisions. See, this is a really high-quality business. It has a high return on capital. Its earnings are growing well into double digits. It has a good balance sheet. It has a good management. I can buy at a fair price. So let's just say that multiple holes, I buy it at a fair multiple, and the, the earnings can double over five years and go up four times over 10 years. That's, it's a much easier decision to make than what's in the head of Ben, ben Bernanke or Greenspan and now Jerome Powell or Janet Yellen. Um, that, that it's just very hard to, to work out things that are very hard. It, but it's very seductive. And I, I still do it. After 27 years, I still do it. Mm. I find myself doing it. And fortunately, I have a team around me, mm. you, know, we, you know, just say you're drifting into macro here. It's, it's, it's just because it's in the media, it's in the newspapers. Mm. As, as analysts, we're expected to have a view, expected to know where the market's going. I have no idea where the market's going. And it's, I've kind of made enough mistakes over time to realize I, I just don't know. Mm. It's a very good way of explaining it. Um, compounded probability. Um, just applying it to like a micro level of a company's strategy. It's almost like you probably don't want to invest in a company where its strategy is relied on so many different factors outside of management's control. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I hate to quote Buffett because, because everyone does, but I think, you know, anyone starting out, I think he, he is just the best teacher of basic, good, common sense business. Um, and he, you know, he always said, you know, buy a business that, I think it's Buffett, could be Peter Lynch, but um, buy a business that could be run by a monkey because one day it will be. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and so many, you know, it, if you've got a really, really great business, mm. it, um, it can compensate for a lot of, of economics, you know, recessions, bad management decisions. But if you've got an average business and very bad management or very bad economy, that can mm. be fatal. Mm. Now, you've touched upon um, the, the Claremont Global Fund. So it, it holds around 10 to 15 positions. And you have an investable universe of, of, of around 100 with a market cap of more than generally more than $3 billion. Um, how have you whittled this down to around 100? I, you've alluded to the fact that there's a lot of companies that you avoid, but has that been formed through just going through so many um, companies over your time? Well, I guess, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think of the average business we own, it's over 80 years old. 
Um, so we do like businesses with stable industry structures. They're number one or number two in their industries. They're oligopolies. So they've been around um, a while. So a lot of them are names I've just f- followed for, for 20 years. Mm. Uh, occasionally, we'll come across something new. Um, you know, we run the screens probably once a month. Um, but, you know, we screen by all those metrics that I you know, said to you. So the returns on invested capital, strong balance sheets, market caps. Um, we generally only invest in the U.S., um, and Europe. Um, there's probably only, you know, if I think about it, there's one company globally I'd like to invest in, which isn't in, in those two markets. Um, so we generally invest in developed markets and then we screen out all those industries that I mentioned to you. And that really mm. quickly whittles our, our list down probably to 200, 250 names. Mm. And then there's a whole lot we can also scrub through there and that gets us to working a watch list of 100 to 120. Mm. Um, and, and the way I think about it is if, if you were running Let's say you were um, running your own business and let's say you had your own contracting business, paint contracting business, and there'd be a whole lot of businesses around you. You would think, I'd like to buy those in time. Um, and then you you know what they're worth, um, you know, the people who run them, and then, you know, that can be years following them. You don't have to follow the whole world, I don't think, because mm-hmm. it increases so much complexity. So if we've got 15 stocks and let's say we trade one a quarter, well, we only have to find four new ideas a year. We've already got a bench sitting behind the portfolio of 25 names, so we can take four from that 25, and then every year we kind of refresh that approved list. So, um, you know, ideally, if we don't trade at all, that's the best because then there's no trading costs and there's no tax implications. Mm. Um, so you, f- f- that, but that works for me, and, and I guess we're only trying to get 8 to 12% per annum. Mm. So there's other investors out there who want to get 15% or 20%, and so you have to be more aggressive. Mm. But obviously, the more aggressive you are, it works both on the upside and the downside. Um, yeah. Hmm. So, in terms of the companies that you do focus on, um, it seems like organic growth plays a big role in, or it's an important characteristic that your companies possess. So, what kind of growth strategy uh, provides the most value um, based on the most successful investments uh, to date? Well, I mean, ideally, you want, you want volume growth. That's yeah. straight volume growth. You don't want companies can't just be putting up their prices. I quite like business. If I can find a business that's got volume growth and then putting up its prices in line with inflation or slightly ahead, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of kind of comfortable with that. Um, I mean, something like LVMH has consistently put their prices up ahead of inflation over years. It seems the mm. more they put up their prices, the more people want what they sell. I mean, it's classic if and good. Um, but yeah, if you want you want volume growth. But when, when we say we're looking for organic growth, it doesn't have to be what I call go-go growth, just faster than nominal GDP growth. Because mm. even something like Aon, it only grows its top line at four or five percent over the cycle. I mean, last year, I think it was nine percent was very strong. This year is probably going to be high single digits again. But normally, if you can just grow your earnings at four, your top line at four or five percent, grow your let's say grow your expenses in line with inflation. Um, and then you've got a very capital light business, something like Aon, which mm. is generating a huge amount of cash and they buy back three or four percent of their stock every year. Mm. You know, quite quickly, that gets you into low double digit earnings. Um, mm. But if your valuation, so that, that, but we have businesses that are four or five percent organic growth stories, something like Aon. But then we'll go the whole way up to something like a, you know, um, a Visa or an Alphabet, which is low teens to mid teens growth um, mm. on the top line through, through the cycle. Um, but what's really most important for us is not the, the, the rate of the growth. It's actually the predictability of the earnings in five years. That's what we're really interested in. Three to five years out, do we feel we got a good handle on what this company is going to be earning and do we have a good 
handle on how management are going to allocate capital and how they will maintain competitive advantage. So in terms of predictability of, is it certain like the overall aspects of the business, the operational aspects, um, trying to understand all the different cycles that the business goes through, um, that, that provides you with confidence in trying to forecast um, earnings. Is that right? That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So we, when we look at a business, we look backwards first. They yeah. look back 10 to 15 years, at least go back through a really serious cycle. And the GFC, as I said, is a, is a good, good cycle to look at. Um, so if, if you've got a business that's weathered a lot of cycles, that does give you confidence that, you know, they, they don't have you know, high operating leverage, high, you know, high fixed costs, they lack pricing power, they have weak cash mm. flow, weak balance sheet, or whatever, or whatever flaw or weakness they have in their business model, um, if they've weathered those storms successfully, that does give you confidence that, and, and you know when you do forecasts, I mean, analysts forecasts are notoriously, mm. um, you know, in, inaccurate. Mm. So, you know, you've got to make sure that, that you forecast. I mean, no one's analyst model ever has a recession. In. So you've got, to, you've got to try and forecast businesses that, um, that you have at least a shot of getting that, that earnings track trajectory right. So, mm. I mean, I, like banks, it's it's almost impossible because you have to forecast the economy. Mm. I don't know what's going to happen. You have to forecast interest rates, oil prices. The one I love with oil prices, 2014, when oil prices were well over $100, and every oil company, every oil expert, every government body said oil prices are going to stay above $100 forever. Mm. And you know, then shale oil came along, and very quickly the the oil prices were down, I don't know, 50 or 70%. Mm. And not one of the experts, well, I'm sure they were experts, but I never saw anyone. Say that was going to happen in 2007. No, no one, no one would have predicted that interest rates would be this low, uh, with budget deficits this high, with inflation this high, with money creation this high. It just is. It was almost inconceivable. Hmm. So, if your whole whole business rationale is based on making a correct forecast of a macro input or a commodity input or a drug discovery or a government hmm. regulation or a political election, yeah, it gets really difficult. Hmm. I just wanted to peel back a few layers um, about your comment in preferring organic growth where it's what well, it's growth through volume. Um, so with comp- companies like Aon and LVMH, um, are you trying to understand the total addressable market, what um, how much it can grow through its ex- its existing customers and also through market share? We in some instances we'll do that. Um, most cases we'll look at what's the company's organic growth been over time. So it gets more, the faster growing businesses, you, we kind of scale down as they go, grow through, through time and sort of almost trend back to, to nominal GDP growth through time. So they're kind of growing mm. quickly now, but we know there's going to be a, you know, no businesses can grow faster than the, the economy for, for a long period of time. There are certain businesses we look at and we'll go, I mean, you, you can look at something like Visa and you can look at what the, the addressable market is and you know, call it PCE um, in the world is $50 trillion. Um, mm. As it stands today, I think um, 20, 25 trillion is done by card. So you've still got that. You know that um, that 50, 50 trillion is growing, call it 4 or 5% every year. Mm. Um, there's a whole lot of new uses that are found for cards all the time. You know, there's uses 10 years ago we couldn't have imagined, you know, P2P, business to consumer, government to consumer, B2B. Um, you know, the flows now are two ways. You know, in the first days, early days, it was 
Um, it was credit cards, um, and that was a lend model but by the banks. Then it became debits cards. That was a spend model. Um, and now it's just become a way of just moving money around. Mm. Um, you can move from a card to a bank account, from a card to a bank, from account to account. Um, so all the nodes of moving money have just got, there's just more and more. Yeah. Um, so in that sort of instance, you can see, I mean, and I remember when I first you know, saw the card companies, you could, you could see such a long runway of mm. growth because you had this huge addressable TAM. You could see what percent was done in cards. Mm. Um, and so there are instances, there's another business we're looking at at the moment. Uh, which is a software business, and we can see how big the TAM is. I think it's something like $70 billion, and only 30% is um, third-party software. So that type of business, you can actually see the long runway. Something like Aon, it's not going to grow much faster than the economy. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a very steady-state steady, steady state business. So it's normally the, you know, the high single-digit 10% plus grows where you're kind of looking at the TAM and seeing how far mm. they could potentially go. But most of the businesses that we own – I mean, Alphabet back in the day was another one where you could look at it and go, well, hmm. how much of the world's media spend is on this rubbish, you know, linear TV programming, print and magazines. Um, hmm. And you could, you know, you didn't have to be a rocket science to work out that all of those ad dollars were going to shift across to, to where the eyeballs were. Hmm. And you could see, look, just look at the, the spend. Hmm. Um, so those types of businesses, you can look at market share. But something like Aon, we, we know it's just going to grow in line with nominal GDP or maybe slightly faster. Mm. Um, so there we don't kind of look at the, I mean, the addressable market is all the is, you know, global GDP effectively. Mm. Just all that software, TAM, would you verify that yourself and just double check whether, whether or not it actually makes uh, sense? Yeah, so that, that there we'll use, you know, in our expert calls and stuff, we will speak to people and, you know, who've either been in that industry or compete with them and say, you know, but but there's normally what happens is you can actually see evidence of it happening. Mm. So we we wouldn't make an investment going okay. Well, it hasn't happened in the past, but it's going to happen in the future. We would more often than not we'll wait for it to start happening and then and then jump on because normally these things have a really long runway. Mm. So we tend to be slightly late to things because I'd rather you know jump on slightly later, pay a higher price, mm. but the probabilities of it working out being much 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 higher. Um, you know, there's a reason that venture capitalists have hundreds of positions, you know, lots of them don't work out, but then you have the really, the one that really works. We're the exact opposite. We want all our positions to work out. We can't have any failures with only 10 to 15 stocks. So that, that one you're talking about, you can see for years, if you go back and look through all their presentations, you can see incremental market share gains over time. You can see that with Visa. You can see that with Alphabet. Something like Aon, it's, it's, it's a 4 or 5% grower. Mm. So you want to partner with management teams with a resolute focus on a company's core competitive advantage. So what do you mean by this? And what are the signs or indicators are you looking for when you evaluate uh, management? The key one is capital allocation. Capital allocation and also how they talk in, in their transcripts um, or when you talk to them, how do they talk about competitive? Do they understand what makes the business special? And do they understand strategy? Um, and a lot of the stuff's actually, it's pretty basic. But mm. what ends up happening is you get the, a lot of people think growth is a strategy. So if you ask a manager, we, we just want to grow. You, you, but that's not a strategy. The strategy is defined by what you won't do. You know, what type, what type of the market are you going to go for? And what are you going to do better than anyone else that's going to make it difficult for customers to switch? 
So what you see often is that you have these really good businesses that generate a lot of cash flow. And what I say, often management confuse their own brilliance with the company's competitive advantage. So they'll get to the, you know, quite often, you know, people who get to running companies are not shrinking violets. Um, they're probably, you know, hard charging, aggressive people. They get to the, the top of the company and, and they go, right, I'm really going to make my mark and I'm, I'm going to grow. And that means, okay, well, let's go to make acquisitions. And what ends up happening is what they do is they take the money from the, the, the special core and they divert their capital and their attention into something that at the time looks really exciting. An investment banker turned up and gave you a great PowerPoint presentation. You have to do this as strategic, whatever reason there is. And it's just so, so tempting to do it. And what I find always fascinating is um, a company is only interesting. It's suddenly in play when someone else wants to buy it. So yesterday I didn't want to buy the company, but now my competitor wants to buy it. So now I have to buy it as well. Mm. But, but you weren't interested in yesterday. Um, you know, we've seen an instance in Australia where, where Woolworths has had a you know, really long history of doing a very good job in, in retail. And, and just at the time when competition was heating up from Coles and from Aldi, they decided mm. to go into DIY where they had mm. no, no pedigree at all. And they went up against Bunnings, which is an incredible business, mm. who, know, who have the best sites, who have the scale, who have the management experience, best relationships with suppliers, best people, and it ended in disaster. And it's not surprising. You know, that, you know, GE, classic example of a really good industrial business that took all that cash flow and ended up becoming effectively a financial conglomerate that went to property and insurance and media, um, you know, movies. Um, you know, they shouldn't be in those businesses at all. What they should have been doing is taking that cash, reinvesting back in the business, reinvesting in R&D, um, you know, making better products, listening to their customers. And, and if they and they had done that to the best of their ability, then they'd give the money back to us shareholders, buy their stock or give us dividends. But it's just managements can't help themselves because, because there's always this pressure from the shareholders to grow and there's pressure from the employees to grow. Um, and the investment bankers are in the boardroom saying you need to make this acquisition or then five years later they'll turn up and say, oh, you need to break up the company and, and on and on it goes. Interesting that you mentioned uh, um, how... Bullworths tried to start Masters to yeah. battle battle against Bunnings, and I think Bunnings did the did a similar thing in trying to enter well, the UK yeah. market. Yeah. <laughs> Bunnings did exactly the same. I mean, Australian banks, Australian banks have been to the UK. It's not, you know, I don't want, I don't like to call out, you know, I don't like to call out people, you know, because, but you know, there are examples. Those are examples I, I would I would I would give. I mean, fortunately, Woolworths now is. Right back on its, you know, on its core business again, and that's been really, you know, the, the business is doing much better. Or Bunnings is right back on its core business. I mean, Australian banks—they went to the UK. Tesco's is a good example. Mm. Tesco's went to up into the states, and they're going to go head to head with Walmart. Mm. That's, that's not good, and it didn't end well. I mean, they, they also, in, you know, the late sort of noughties, they were expanding all over the world, and all you could see is the return on capital kept falling all the time. Mm. Um, the earnings per share was going up with lots of sort of accounting gymnastics. But the return on capital was falling all the time, just at the time, again, in the in the UK when Sainsbury's was going mm. through a renaissance, Aldi, Lidl were coming at them. And what they should have been doing is just focusing on the core. And it's kind of similar to military strategy, if you think about it. Mm. Like, you know, um, you end up fighting wars on lots of different fronts. It just gets really, and you just divert all your resources. Um, and if you're fighting against someone who's got all their resources focused on one, area it's it's very difficult to and there's so many instances of european generals or people who, who went and opened up you know the, the normal one is going to take on 
you know, expanding east, and that normally doesn't end, end very well. Or you think even think of the Romans; they just got mm. too big, got too 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 far dispersed, and eventually just got overran. Mm. It's great to hear historical lessons where they're they're so relevant to you know business as well. Um, in terms of like over a long period of time, you've been monitoring the performance of these management teams based on the capital allocation decisions. Um, have there been any management teams where um, at first in the first 10 years or so they've done really well, but then it started to wane and then you've potentially lost confidence or faith in them making future capital allocation decisions? Hmm. Good question. Um, I'm sure they are. And I'm, I'm sort of, <laughs> I mean, I mean, a good one actually that's quite topical at the moment and something we, we looked at last year quite closely is, is Facebook. Um, we really have a very big position in in Alphabet, but you know, Facebook itself is a, is a is a pretty impressive business as well. You know, very strong position in digital advertising, great financial metrics, high margins, um, you know, great balance sheet, great cash flows. You know, owner 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 managed. Um, mm. So lots of things we like, but the you know the reason we the couple of things we don't like we didn't really like the governance mm. and the kind of ESG position that was a negative. We felt that the the owner had, um, had had just basically there was not enough checks and balances, um, you know, on, on him. Um, I mean, didn't feel they put consumers' interests, you know, first and foremost. It's interesting on the expert calls when we did experts with ex Facebook employees, they mm. they kind of the tone coming out was just kind of build it and sort out the problems later. Mm. Whilst if you spoke to ex Google employees, the tone coming out was uh, we will. Um, what we'll do is we we kind of move really slowly and we kind of have to reach and, and there's problems with that as well bureaucracy we move slowly but then we when everyone's got by and then we move really really quickly but we do kind mm. of think they just seem to think a little more around consumers but when facebook then suddenly said and it may work out i'm not saying it won't work out but suddenly mm. they changed the name and call it what is it called now meta platforms meta. Yeah. um and then they just you know their whole suddenly strategy is all going to be metaphors mm. Um, that, that that's that's like a whole new kettle of fish now. You've taken your capital allocation to focusing on the core business, but you feel that's getting disrupted. Um, so now we're just going to, and, and it's kind of just the odds just change mm. because now it, it may or may not work, but now we're kind of more into venture capital. And, mm. and then we, we're having to make a prediction on the future. And so we feel much, much less um, uncomfortable about that. I'm trying to think of, you know, big acquisitions are normally the one the big thing that always is more often than not a disaster. And I'm trying to think of some in my own mind. I mean, you, uh, but I, I, I can't, but I'm sure they're, <laughs> they're there. They will be definitely be there. Um, if I go, if I go down my list, things that we've pushed onto the B list, um, but I can't think of any at the moment. No worries. Um, that, I think that was a great example and it's a very relevant example today. Um, so just moving away from management, um, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, valuation. So it, um, your investor manual says it's based on uh, simple metrics, uh, which is um, based on it's empirically based. Um, so it'd be great if you could expand on a couple of those simple metrics and what the empirical reasoning um, was behind each each one of them. Well, I guess I guess when I got my my CFA, especially armed with my CFA and finance series, so you know looked at DCFs and wax and all that type of stuff and. Uh, and I guess what I found over time is that 
um, you could make the valuation be anything you want it to be by just changing. And I've seen sales side analysts do this as well by changing your discount rate, changing your beta, changing your WAC, changing your terminal growth rate. You can make the valuation do whatever you want, especially at low interest rates. Hmm. Um, so that's you know the most traditional measure is using a um, you know using a DCF. So we don't hmm. re- we use a backup DCF, but it's it's very very uh, back of the envelope and it's just a sense check. So hmm. really, what we what we look to do is we say okay, well. Because we we look at forward earnings, um, and so we say, well, what what do we think this business can earn in five years? What sort of multiple would we put on those earnings? And then we just discount that back at a constant discount rate of eight hmm. percent, and that gives us, you know, effectively that's the purest return an investor can receive, hmm. um, and that's how we do it. Um, and you know, we, it's really just a series of IRs that are running through the through the portfolio. Um, I mean, some people will. I've seen people use trailing earnings. Um, there's 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 a benefit to that, in that you don't have to do the forecasting. Um, so mm. that that's a, there's a positive in that. Um, but what we're really interested in is, is the future and what, what is this company going to be earning in the future. But you have to pick businesses where you have a really high degree of confidence in in those future earnings. Mm. Um, and it's, it's that simple. Uh, and then we use through the cycle input. So every sort of multiple we put on earnings. We don't kind of look at today's multiple and then mm. say that's a fair multiple. We'll look at what does this business trade at over, you know, 10, 10 years? What's what's a normal multiple? And then over time, you kind of, you get a feel, you know, you know that Aon's going to tend to trade at a, you know, market multiple or a 10% premium. Visa's a 50% premium. Alphabet's mm. a 35. Um, somewhere, I guess they're lord. You kind of get a feel where do these businesses normally trade relative mm. to market multiples. Yeah. Um, we generally don't buy businesses that trade at a discount. Uh, but it's not it's not very um not going to win any, any awards at um uh universities and finance courses i don't think and it's mm. just something that's how um i learned how to do it in london with silo and investment management and that's kind of you know i've seen other people do trailing cash flows um there's benefits to that i've seen people do i think dcfs i'm, I'm definitely not a fan of a dcf mm. uh, because the inputs are so can make the final number be very volatile so when you build those earnings, are you trying to forecast the earnings over a 10-year period? Five years. Oh, five years. Okay. And selecting that multiple. Ten years is, it- ten years is a really long time. Yeah. I mean, and, and the way I think about this is if you think back 10 years ago, um, you know, come, you know, the one that's been really interesting for me has been the whole demise of that kind of mass media consumer staple space. So hmm. 10, 15 years ago, they, these were the alphabets and alphabets and visas of today they were the stocks you had to own 40 percent, i think of our portfolio was consumer staples you know, things like colgate gillette procter and gamble um, and just over time that those companies have seen their the competitive advantage slip they've seen their growth rates drop hmm. uh, more and more competition from private label their competitive advantage they've had in mass media has been you know changed because of you know, the way you can get to market very cheaply now hmm. um, through through the internet so um, businesses change. So five, 10 years is a long time. Hmm. Um, you know, if I, yeah, but, but then, as I said, the average age of the businesses we own is, is 80 years old. Yeah, so, so for those kind of industries in the consumer staples business, would you put on a uh, slightly lower multiple yeah. than you, you would we, usually? We, we wouldn't even try and value them. Yeah. So, so once what, we always start with, with the quality piece. Yeah. So what 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 we don't try and do is adjust for risk. Hmm. Um, I mean, my previous job in London, we tried to do this, and we used different discount rates, and we had an A, B, and C list, and A's got 
a lower discount rate and mm. um, we adjusted for beta. Um, and in the end, I've just kind of got to this where I just go, you know what? I want to earn 8% and I want to earn it earning at least, I don't try and adjust for the risk. Mm. Um, you know, if I had a 50 or 100 stock portfolio, maybe I would have, you know, some more risky positions and have, you know, higher discount rate to adjust for the risk, which is traditional finance theory, mm. which is correct. Um, mm. But we, we don't do that. So Colgate's not even on our watch list now. Mm. Mm. In fact, there's very few consumer staples on our watch list. Mm. So arriving at that multiple, is it an industry-specific multiple where you try and work it, work it out? Uh, it tends to be stock-specific, actually. But okay. it's stock-specific, stock but it tends to be industry-specific as well. You know, so for some reason, we know that, you know, Aon is never going to trade at a big premium to the market. The market trades it as an insurer. Yeah. Um, even something like Alphabet ne never, and why we've owned it for five years, it never really gets a very high multiple. You mm. know, the market quite rightly is, is and, I, and it's actually interesting, a lot of businesses that are faster growing, the market's actually quite good at actually handicapping that mm. because as soon as you've got faster growth, your predictability just by definition is going to go down. Mm. because your you know, range of outcomes is going to be much wider. So quite often you'll find that businesses are really fast growing. I mean, Amazon's a complete different case, but something mm. like an Alphabet has never really got a very big multi, while something mm. like a Estee Lauder, which just every single year is a 6-7% organic growth, makes its numbers. Mm. The market will pay a higher multiple for the predictability. L'Oreal is another one, you know. Mm. Um, so... I, I just don't want to get into an argument. I think the market does a good job of working out over time, you know, mm. what, what the appropriate multiple is to put on earnings. Mm. What would you assess, like the current multiple, would you assess the performance of the business uh, like historically and then you're trying to work out the relevant multiple now? Like, Yeah, there we, there's an element of judgment in it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a big part of it is going, well, where does this business norm normally trade? What, what's a normal multiple of earnings yeah. to put it on, you know, over using a 10-year average? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there will be instances where a business might have had a really high multiple, super fast growing. You know, Amazon, we, you know, it's it's on our on our watch list. Um, we've never bought it because of, of valuation. There's also, we've got probably, you know, there's, we've got Alphabet and Microsoft, so there's no need to, to double up there. Yeah. Um, so we, we would never use the past multiple as a guide to the future once it gets into a more steady yeah. state type. You know, sometimes you have really fast-growing retailers. You know, you know in time that growth rate will drop, so you have to kind of say, okay, in five years' time, mm. what do we think the multiple will roughly be? You'll have other businesses where we take the multiple up, where yeah. you can go, you know, the competitive position is actually improving, but we can only take we, – we kind of have rules, you know, how much we can go up and how go down because mm. – the way we are wired as investors is company will have a result. You feel really good about the result. You upgrade mm. your numbers, you upgrade your multiple. Mm. Same thing, you have bad result, you take your numbers down, you downgrade. And, and it's the recency bias. Mm. Um, it always feels, and even the businesses we own, it feels like Alphabet's forever or Visa's forever. Mm. But, you know, if I look at those businesses, those, even as exciting as they are now, those, they, they may not be forever. Mm. You know, I thought Colgate was forever. Mm. People thought GE was forever. Nothing's mm. forever. Mm. Um, well, Sherwin Williams maybe. But <laughs> um, So you noted in your investment manual, you're saying that European and Aussie companies tend to trade on a premium compared to the US stocks. And you say it's a function of scarcity uh, value. Can you uh, elaborate on this and, and what, you, what you mean by this? 
Well, it's just, it's just, um, so if, I'm always amazed that the, the, the macro strategists always say sell the US is expensive by um, Europe and Japan because they're cheap. Um, but if you actually look at a, at a stock quality growth level consistently, and I found this for 20 years, the US more often than not will be cheaper than its European counterpart. And if you look at the Australian quality growth names, you look at the CSLs, the ResMeds, the Cochleas. I mean, they will trade sometimes 20 or 30 points above mm. what you will find in the States for exactly the same sort of financial metrics and growth. Mm. Um, and it can only be because of scarcity value. Mm. Um, there's no other reason that, that explains it to me. There are just so many good businesses in America. Um, it's just a deep market that, and your choices are much wider. Um, you know, that's the only way I can explain it because um, mm. it just makes no sense to me. You know, if you were a rational business person, why, why would you buy CSL, in Australia, mm. when you could go and buy something equivalent in the States, it's much, much cheaper. Mm. But obviously, as an investor, an Australian investor, you have to own all of these high-quality Australian mm. businesses. And then that goes to the institutional imperative. I've got to be, you know, I've got to be on the benchmark. I've got to own the best companies. If I don't, I'll lag. If I lag, then I get fired. Mm. Um, but, you know, we only have to own 10 to 15 quality growth businesses. And, and I've always skewed to the US. And it's not because of the macro. It's not because of... Of the politics, it's just where we find the best businesses. Hmm. I feel like a lot of those big names in, in the ASX market, the CSLs and the ResMeds, uh, probably maintain that multiple because of the reasons. They probably will. Yep, yeah, they probably will. But I guess the risk is as a global investor, in, and we have this actually with some of our, you know, there's a, a Danish company we, we follow, a terrific business, um, and it consistently trades at a really high multiple, and we'd love to hmm. own it. But there's always, you kind of go, well, that just doesn't make sense to me that it trades at that multiple. Mm. And so, you know, we handicap that and go, that just, and um, I know the analyst gets really frustrated by that and he's probably mm. right. Mm. Um, but there's always the risk, you go, well, you know, why can't I just go and find something else where I just mm. don't have to pay as much? Mm. Because there's more, I guess, more downside risk with owning those there's more downside, companies. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was great to talk about people and, the process behind the overall Claremont Global Investing uh, philosophy. And now on a portfolio level, you, you did refer to a, a couple of, um, you know, business risks and companies that you, you prefer to avoid. Now, there was one that particularly interested me. It was, it was companies that um, were, were generating profits in decline due to a structural decline. Um, as a result of a fade in their competitive advantage, mm-hmm. how do you how do you monitor this and keep a pulse on that? Oh, normally, a good place to start is you're going to get declining organic growth, yeah. um, and then the next thing that kind of happens, you you sort of see margins slipping, and because margins are slipping, they'll start using adjusted numbers, um, and then they will probably in, embark on a cost-cutting exercise to get those margins back up. Hmm. Um, another one you'll see is oh, he's kind of struggling, so they then start buying back their stock very aggressively, gearing up the balance sheet to try and it's what I call the, the pear-shaped income statement. Hmm. No top-line growth, cost-cutting through the middle of the income statement, and then you know buybacks aggressively and, hey, presto, we're a double-digit grower. Hmm. Um, other times you'll see them, they go, oh, we can go for the major acquisition to kind of hide the declining um, organic, it, it normally starts with organic growth, to be honest, mm. and margin mm. slippage. Mm. Um, uh, and, and the market's actually quite good at picking up on this. 
And so then, then what, what, what ends up happening is that the multiple compresses on you. Um, and then as investors, we, we kind of have to go and um, my co-PM and I, we kind of go, well, if this is in the portfolio, we, we, we sh- it's obviously cheap. Hmm. We should be buying more of it. But if, if we can't kind of bring ourselves to buy more, hmm. we'll, we'll then we'll get out of it because we obviously haven't got much conviction in it. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the, and, you know, to be honest, I, I've made mistakes like this in my, my own personal portfolio with the, I've only got a couple of investments outside the fund, but mm. you know it's so good to to have the the process and stick to it and be um, and it's so easy for investors to slip into the type of thinking of oh it's only a small position mm. oh I'll try and get back to what it what it what it was worth I don't, you know get back to break even or it's too cheap to sell or what it, whatever it is and I kind of just learned over time it's easier just to it's easier just to, to just get out of that position and put it in something that you actually have conviction. You don't, you don't have to make the money back the same way you lost it. So mm. you should come to work with a blank sheet every day and go, if I didn't own this, would I buy it today? Mm. Mm. It's a very uh, measured approach. Uh, yeah, really appreciate it and really like that. Um, just moving away from all the maybe the more investing side of things, and then onto um, your personality and the traits. Now, I, I've noticed some of your previous colleagues have described you as dependable, conscientious, courteous, knowledgeable, and an excellent communicator. Um, were you born with these traits and attitudes, or did you um, spend a lot of time honing um, on these? It's good to see the bribery money is working. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's a hard question to to answer. I think I've always been a reasonable communicator. Mm. Um, I've always been interested in businesses, so I don't kind of look at it as work. I just find it interesting, you know, reading annual reports or reading transcripts. Or um, I don't know if it comes from sport. I I, I love the idea of competitive advantage and and mm. being in being in businesses. It's it's like watching a you know, really great sports team and just going, these businesses are just so powerful and have competitive advantage and excellence um, um you know so i don't look at it as as kind of work um i've always thought that in investing you should i think it is important to be um what's the word uh, even with the companies you interview don't don't be just be polite with management um it's it's actually you you, you can ask all the questions you want, but just ask them in a, in a polite way. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy running some of these big conglomerates. You know, it's, you know I couldn't mm. do it. Um, and you're probably going to get better information out of people by just being polite and, mm. you know, not... Um, empathetic. Being, uh, not, 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 not empathic, just, just, you know, if you treat people, if you're aggressive with management, they're, they're going to go, oh, geez, that guy's just aggressive, just... just don't take us call or don't, you know, um, you know, we've got a difficult job. They've got a difficult job. Our jobs to cut, you know, to ask them questions they may be uncomfortable with, but you don't have mm. to be aggressive about it. And I, and actually I fell into this mistake, to be honest, mm. in my early years, um, I would stand up at AGMs and I would ask the aggressive question. Mm. It was really about me. What mm. was really about me and going, here I am, everyone, I'm the, you know, I'm asking a big, you know, and over time I learned that didn't really get me anywhere. Um, Hmm. I mean, I've never been a sell side analyst. So as a sell side analyst, you probably have some, you have to probably be more outspoken. Luckily on the buy side, we don't, you can just hmm. make your own opinions. I think within a, within a team, 
um, it's really important to be respectful um, of other people's opinions because if you're aggressive, um, again, like I was saying, you can suck the oxygen out of a room mm. um, and it just helps other people to, to play to their strengths if you know, they're not kind of living in fear, if you like. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've probably always enjoyed reading and um, communicating, I guess, writing or especially talking, as you see by today, I've waffled mm. on. Um, just love explaining to clients. Uh, I think so much of investing is made complicated. It, it's mm. actually, it's, you know, if you just change the word from investing to business, then it simplifies things. Mm. Um, there's a whole lot of complication that's grown up around investment, which more often than not is very advantageous to the people selling it and very disadvantageous to the clients who buy it. Mm. It's a very uh, balanced approach. I think it reflect, reflects um, what your colleagues, your previous colleagues have uh, said about you. Um, reflecting on what your colleagues have said, and do you, do you try and find um, analysts that, kind of possess the same qualities and attitudes that you have? Um, I, I guess, yeah. No, I, I, if you look at our investment team, it's a small one. There's just, just four of us. Or even if you mm-hmm. look at the, the whole team, there's just six of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, every single one of them is a, is a, is a nice person. I mean, uh, it's a cliche, but mm-hmm. um, they're respectful. They're respectful of clients. They're respectful of colleagues. We're all human. We all know we're going to make mistakes. So you need you need to have someone next to you. I, I remember one of the great things someone told me. Um, he was in, he was in a London uh, um, Philharmonic Orchestra and he played the oboe in the, in the orchestra. And he was, he, I said to him, "So you're on tour. How does the orchestra work? It's got to work like a team." And he said, "You know, what's really important is that the the, the whole orchestra, the people actually get on and like each other." Hmm. Because he said, "If you're having a bad." a bad night and you're playing off key, you need someone next to you who, who has the confidence to say to you, you are terrible tonight. Mm. I'm just telling you that. Um, and so I think, you know, that sort of collegiality, but that, that's, that, that works for me. It might not work for other people. I'm just saying for me that works. Mm. So I think that's important. I think people who, are, who genuinely put client interests first is, is really important. Mm. Um, you know, what we do is actually quite a serious job. I mean, it kind of gets lost in the glamour of markets and blah, 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 and rock star fund managers and all the rest of it. Mm. But it's actually really important what we do. I mean, this this is people's retirements. It's kids getting educated. It's elderly people sleeping well at night. It's transferring wealth to the next generation. It's all sorts of these things. So it is important what, what we do. Um, and so I you know, look for people who realize they're just not in this industry because they just want to get paid lots and lots of money because it can be financially very rewarding. Mm. You know, so that's important. I think people who are curious. Mm. I think people, and so like if you look at our team, we have lots of different backgrounds and nationalities. And I like that. You know, they mm. um I think people who are immigrants are generally maybe because I'm one, I have a predis predisposition to that because you're bringing different life experiences, different, different kind of just diff- yeah, different life experiences. Um, you, you naturally, as an immigrant, you want you want to prove yourself. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, one I won't mention him, but he's a very famous Australian investor, and um, he said that something that really resonated with me. He said one of the one of the disadvantages of people who who went to some of the um, you know elite Australian private schools is that 
is that they're all still talking to those same people 20 or 30 years later. So they haven't haven't developed, and they're always still competing with those people. They haven't developed other sources of of life experiences or knowledge. And that really kind of stuck with me. Mm. Um, uh, and he was an he was an immigrant as well. Mm. So I think that's an interesting trait to have. Um, you know, patience is really important. Like I said, you have to genuinely enjoy investing. Um, and then you have to, in, in our team, you have to be a team player because there'll be times when you go, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you, or you want that analyst not over-championing their idea to the detriment of everyone else's, you know, so just, or, or keeping all their IP to themselves and not sharing it with the team. Um, you know, just because if I get a good stock in the portfolio, I'm going to get a bigger bonus. Um, but that's going to be the detriment of the portfolio and the detriment of clients. It's very important. Um, characteristics, attitudes, you know, so traits um, for, I think, anyone to have, um, whether it be I mean, investing what, or... <laughs> just an anecdote, one great story, yeah. a sporting analogy that I love is, and I, having been a fan of the Springboks, is, mm. um, you know, John Smith won the, the World Cup with the Springboks in 2007. And he said in his book, he said, you know, they there was this player who's clearly the best player in in South Africa at the time. And he went to John Smith and he said, you know what, look at my stats, look at my tries scored, look at everything here. I'm clearly the best player mm. in, in the country. Why am I not in the team? And John Smith said to him, well, what, what are the names of such and such as kids? And he said, I don't know. He said, that's why you're not in the team. Mm. And that, you know, that type of, you want people who 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 kind of all driving towards the same place. Mm. It's a very profound anecdote. And I think um, that leads into a very profound question. And it's a question that I ask all my guests. Um, so who's had the most influence on your development as a person and investor uh, and why? People I know or books or, or I, mean, I, people. I mean, definitely people that I've worked with. Yeah, anyone. Um, I think definitely working with Silo Investment Management in London, Peter Silo and Michael Boyd. Yeah. Um, definitely, um, you know, Peter kind of really honed in me the, the quality growth f- philosophy, um, you know, focus, quality growth, long-term investing. Uh, Michael Boyd as well. Um, Michael Boyd was, um, he's gone on to form a very successful company of his own called GuardCap. Just really um, the way he ran the team, very calm, um, no ego, um, just a really, um, just a very, very, very smart, decent person i'm not surprised he's been as successful um, as he has been um you know i think working with stephen arnold um he had you know big influence on my thinking in terms of just forgetting about macro analysis and just 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 throwing that out the door i think that was you know who you, you know working with steve i think was very instrumental um and i was yeah those are the people i've kind of worked with i haven't had a lot of jobs in my, my career but those would probably be the key influences it's a, a number of great role models that um, you had in your life. And I think that's a reflection of who you are today. I think after listening to um, your story, um, how you built the team and what you look for in individuals when they do uh, be part of your team, you're very generous with uh, sharing a lot of your time as well. So um, really appreciate you coming on um, the Australian Investors Podcast. Um, I think you you're a great role model um, in the Australian investing community. So thank you, Bob. Thanks, Ray, and thanks for your time. And I hope, hope your viewers uh, hope they find it useful. Thanks, Bob. Take thanks, care. Ray. Cheers. <laughs>
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.